0: Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com support.
1: Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt.
0: Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, Felony Friday each and every single week. I focus on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. And for our new listeners out there, if this is your first time listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast, your first time listening to Felony Friday, this is only one of three shows that we have here. We have a show every Monday hosted by Mark Claire. It's our longest running program, our flagship program, where Mark interviews leading minds in the Liberty Movement. He hosts roundtable discussions. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land, hosted by Brian McWilliams, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. This episode of Felony Friday is the 105th episode. So that means you'll be able to find the show notes with links and notes to everything I'm going to talk about today with my guest at lionsofliberty.com FF105. And this is a actually a combination episode of Felony Friday. It's an interview and a felony review. So trying something new here. So we're going to talk to a libertarian author and then we're going to review some felonies. And at the very end, play America's fastest growing game show. Is this a crime? And should they do time? Guys, one more note before we get started. This episode of Felony Friday is sponsored by the Better Money Political Action Committee. The Better Money PAC was founded to identify and help elect candidates who will fight for three founding principles, financial responsibility, safe cryptocurrency, and free market solutions. The Better Money PAC will invest in five selected races in 2018 in order to elect candidates at the state level who embody the fight for better money. You can donate to the Better Bunny Pack through the, our Lions of Liberty affiliate link. Just go to lionsofliberty.com bettermoney. My guest today on Felony Friday is Derek Williams. Derek is a passionate and lifelong libertarian, a licensed acupuncturist, and the author of Liberty and the Thin Blue Line. Derek has seen the damaging effects of the out-of-control police state And in response to that, he decided to do something about it by writing this novel in order to draw attention to this growing problem of police abuse, of police violence that we have in this country. Derek, welcome to Felony Friday.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Thanks for coming on the show, man. And thank you for sharing your book with me. Um, It was a great read and uh, a very uh, enjoyable and, and easy read, I found it, entertaining, entertaining uh, on different levels. there is some obviously some uh, disturbing stuff. we don't have to get in the details of it, but disturbing in a way that it uh, you know reminds you why we're fighting for liberty. So I want to talk about the book later and get into those details. Um, we have some if we have time at the end, we have some uh, trending news stories that we're going to try to get to uh, that Derek and I talked about uh, in, during the pre-show chat. But before we get to that stuff, I want the Felony Friday audience to get to know you, to get to know what you're all about, what drives you, what's, uh, what has uh, pulled you in to the liberty movement. So first things first, how did you become a libertarian?
1: Well, I think I probably always had libertarian ideas from the time I was a child. I just believed in live and let live, leave people alone, don't pick on other people. Um, don't let other people pick on you. I was a small kid and I was bullied in school, and I know what it's like to be bullied. And I would always fight back and I fought back hard, <laughs> you know. And uh, as far as when I knew what a libertarian was, I remember the first time I ever saw the word libertarian. Um, I, I turned 18 in 1988 and I was going to vote. And I went to the fire department, the local fire department was where we voted. And I went with my mom and dad, and I saw all these. Posters up of all these weird political parties I'd never heard of. You know, of course, everybody knew about the Republicans and Democrats. Um, and uh, that year, uh, George Bush Sr. was running against, I believe, it was Walter Mondale. Is that correct?
0: I think it sounds right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And um, so back then, I remember I saw a sign, and I, I saw there were there was like a communist that was running. I think you had to write them in, and there was a Socialist Workers Party that was running, and you had to write them in, and they had posters for all these even in a small town I lived in. And I remember I saw a libertarian uh, sign, and it had Ron Paul. And I said, uh, Dad, what's a libertarian? And he said, dang if I know. He said, but it don't matter. They're not going to win anyway. And I said, okay. And uh, so I just kind of, you know, wrote it off. And we were Republicans, so we voted for Bush. And I wish I had that one back now. But <laughs> anyway, you know, I uh, that's the first time I saw or heard it. Later on, when I really realized I was a libertarian, um, I was in I was in bodybuilding, and I was doing some nutrition. I had worked at a health food store, and I became aware of this fight between the FDA and this uh, organization called the Life Extension Foundation. And the Life Extension Foundation, at the time, they were doing a lot of research on the ways to extend the human lifespan, ways to make people healthier, and all these kinds of things. They were really into uh, dietary supplements. They would do research, and then they would find supplements that actually worked, and they would turn around and sell them. Well, the FDA was trying to shut them down, and the FDA did a raid on the Life Extension Foundation. I'm not exactly sure of the year, maybe 1987 or so, and they raided their headquarters. They stole all their supplements let them sit in a warehouse until they expired and went bad. Uh, they They stole their newsletters. They locked up their leader, their president or CEO, whoever he was, and they threatened him with about 88 years in prison if he didn't just roll over and quit. And he refused to roll over and quit, and he instead came out fighting, got a team of lawyers, got a lot of people to donate money to him, and the FDA was sued by the Life Extension Foundation several times, and the Life Extension Foundation won every time. And... As a result of their newsletters, they started talking about libertarian ideals back then. Um, Life Extension Foundation now does a lot of research. They also sell a lot of dietary supplements, but back then they were really, really heavily involved in the political scene because of their fight with the FDA. And that's where I first heard about libertarianism, and that's when I first knew what a libertarian was and that I was a libertarian.
0: That's really interesting. That's I, I haven't heard of that particular... Um feud or lawsuit back and forth. I'm going to have to look that up, and I'll, I'll try to link some articles on the show notes page. So the Life Extension Foundation sued the FDA and won. That's pretty amazing. Yes,
1: several times. And there were, there were other um, things going on back then. There was also an effort by the FDA at the time to this, – this is what got me involved politically for the first time in my life. I think I was about 24, uh, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, was a bill put forth by um, Orrin Hatch and I forget somebody else. Uh, anyway, it was it was a bipartisan bill, and there was a Orrin Hatch, and then there was somebody in the House of Representatives, and I can't remember who it was right now, but he was a Democrat. So it was like I said, it was bipartisan, and they put this bill uh, this bill forth to stop the FDA from abusing health food stores and other people who sold dietary supplements and things like that. And it was the most popular bill at that time, and more people wrote to their congressmen and senators at that time about this bill in favor of it than any other bill in history. And it was so popular, and there were so many letters that went to Congress and the Senate about it, that even the congressmen and senators that were against it signed on as co-sponsors, and it passed unanimously.
0: Wow, I mean that is—it's kind of rare. Well, I guess a couple of things about that. Uh, at least uh, you know, as libertarians or as in, in, you know, independent thinkers, at least my, at least the way I, I look at stuff normally. When you see bipartisan stuff, normally red flags go off, alarms go off. Whenever the two sides agree on something, be very be very afraid because it's probably not good. But to have the two sides agree on something going against the FDA, going against the government agency—that's that's incredible. That's awesome. I'm gonna have to look into that it, one as well.
1: Yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. What what it did basically at that time it it gave the FDA the authority to pull a dietary supplement off the shelf, but only if they could prove it was harmful. So they had that the burden of proof was on the FDA to prove it was harmful, and what the FDA was trying to do was, of course, they're basically bought and paid for by the pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. And the pharma- pharmaceutical companies were wanting to pull a lot of the dietary supplements off the shelf to make them uh, prescription drugs. And that, that's what they were after. They were trying to get all the good and effective dietary supplements off the shelf so that they could make turn them into prescription drugs and sell them at a huge markup and take advantage of the public. And these congressmen and senators were, thankfully aware of what was going on and the fda you know they still like i said they still have the authority they pulled a fedra off the shelf years ago you probably remember that Mm -hmm. uh there was a lot of people using it and abusing it and so they still will pull one off the shelf occasionally if it's heavily abused um but for the most part the fda doesn't even use the power it's been given and they keep complaining that they don't have any power but yes they do they have the ability to pull things off the shelf they need to but they keep, you know. Of course, they always want more and more and more power. But thankfully, the public was wise to it and still is. So hopefully, that will never be overturned.
0: Yeah, they pulled. I was just gonna say that they, they pulled ephedra off the shelf. That's what was in Hydroxycut, right? And then that's right. Yes. Hydroxycut came back, but it yeah, wasn't wasn't the same. wasn't the same deal. But so I'm, I'm curious. So it seems like you came with this from a very uh, obviously the, the house side angle. You were into bodybuilding, and you know that gave you the angle on that to notice. Uh, the cronyism of of the FDA. So, what brought you over to really the uh, looking at the police state side of things, looking at government overreach into
1: communities and
0: you know police overreach at the even at the municipality level or at the township level.
1: Well, what happened? It, it's very interesting. Um, when I was in high school, I actually wanted to be a cop. And <laughs> that's crazy. I know nobody, nobody that knows me would believe that if they didn't know me back then, but there there was me and two of my friends and we wanted to become police officers. The other two interestingly did become police officers. And, um, so I found out about the bad hours, the, at the time, low pay. Now they're paid pretty well now, but at the time the pay wasn't very good. Uh, there's a good chance of getting shot, not coming home. um, you know, I just decided I didn't think that was for me, so I did I decided not to do it. And my like I said, my other two friends, I kind of lost touch with them over the years, but they they did become police officers. But what happened, I, I used to watch the TV show Cops, and oh, yeah. you know, that's been going on since the late eighties. And I started noticing they were getting more and more violent, more and more rough on the suspects. Um they seemed to become more and more dangerous. I actually had a couple of incidents where where I've had a couple of run-ins with police that were uh, a little scary. Um, the first one was in 1989. I was driving home. Um, I'd been to a bodybuilding competition. I was driving home late at night because it was from out it was out of town, and um, I was about 19 years old. And I was driving on a on a curvy country road where you kind of have to drive pretty slow because of the you know the curves in the road and everything. It's about a 35 mile an hour speed limit. And I had this car just come flying up behind me. I mean, he must have been going 75 miles an hour. I was going about 35. So he comes flying up behind me. I don't know who this is. I'm thinking it's a drunk driver or some crazy person. So I gunned it and just ran as fast as I could in my car. And um, I was in a Chrysler Baron convertible turbo. So, you know, it it had a pretty good engine in it. Move on pretty good. Well, what happened? I went around the curve pretty fast and the car behind me slipped and went off the road. The road was wet. They slid and went off the road. So I kind of laughed at it for a minute and uh, kept going. Well, the next thing I know, this car is back on the road with blue lights behind me. Hmm. And that kind of scared me. So I pulled over. The, the nearest place to pull over was a church parking lot. I pulled over, and this guy jumped. He parks maybe 20 feet behind me, jumps out of his car, rolls down his window, jumps behind the door, pulls his gun, and screams at me to stick my hands out the window. Whoa. I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's crazy, you know. And I stick my hands out the window, and I'm saying, don't shoot, don't shoot. And this is in 1989. Now, this is like seems to be an everyday thing now if you see the videos on the Internet. But back then, this was really scary. And so the guy's yelling at me and everything, and I said, come, I said, come here. I'm not armed. You can see my hands. I said, come here. We need to talk. Just come up here closer. We need to talk. So he came over closer, and um, he was kind of a um, – I mean – this is my opinion of the guy's personality and everything. He was kind of what you would consider to be like a fat nerd from high school. (laughs) You know, um, he had like a big spare tire around his waist. He was a tall, big kid, but he was, and he was barely 21. He even had the little rookie thing on his shirt that said he was a rookie. And, um, you know, I was, he, he still got his gun on me. I said, listen, put the gun down. I said, I'm not armed. I'm not dangerous. I said, we need to have a talk here. And so he, Gradually got a little closer. He shined his flashlight in the back of my car, saw that all I had back there was a Bible and a a camera case, and uh, I guess he decided I wasn't dangerous. He put his gun away, and we started talking. He asked me why I ran from him, and I said, well, you ran up on me really fast, really hard, late at night, and you didn't pull your blue lights. I said, I thought you were crazy. I thought you were a drunk driver, and um, I said, you know, you really shouldn't have done that. That's, That's not cool, man. He said, said, well, why did you gun it? Do you know how fast you got? I said, no, I don't know how fast I got. I was trying to get away from you. I said, look, if you want to pull me over, pull your blue lights. If you want to play games, I said, you're you're really dangerous out here. And uh, so at the time, my dad was best friends with the sheriff. And uh, so I had a little talk with this young man and told him that my dad was best friends with the sheriff. And I'm going to have a talk with dad tomorrow morning when he gets up. And I did. And the sheriff fired the guy the next day. Wow. And so he lost his job, which was good. You know, he needed to lose his job. But he begged me before he left. He said, look, man, don't tell your dad. I'm real sorry. I'm real sorry. And, you know, he was just I think he was a nerd. And he was kind of one of these high school nerds that kind of wanted to be tough. And his way of becoming tough was to go become a cop. And he was out what I call looking for adventure. There wasn't any trouble to get into. But he was he found some trouble because he made some trouble. And that, that was my take on the situation. You know, there wouldn't have been any situation if he was just... If he would have come up behind me at a normal speed, I would have just went on home. You know, I wouldn't have tried to run from him. If he would have pulled his blue lights, I wouldn't have tried to run. But when you see headlights flying up behind you, driving erratically, you know, at one o'clock in the morning, it's kind of scary. And so, um, like I said, that one lost his job. Uh, later on, I was in Tampa, Florida, and I didn't move to Tampa for a while. And uh, I got lost. I was... I was on, I don't know if you know about Malfunction Junction, I 275 in Tampa, but it's horrible traffic. And it was my first day going to work. I just moved there, Uh, been there about a week, got a job. I uh, was going to my job, and the interstate was so clogged, I thought there must have been a wreck or something. I didn't realize this is just like normal traffic. And so I pulled off on a little side road, and I got out my map, I had my map in my lap, and I'm just kind of cruising down this little side road, maybe. 15, 20 miles an hour. Well, it turns out there's a school there, and I'm not really paying much attention. And there's a cop with a radar on me. So I apparently I was going 20 in a 10-mile-an-hour zone. And he motioned for me to pull over, and he walked over. And this cop was huge. I mean, he was about six foot eight, about 300 pounds, solid muscle. The vein in his arm was bigger than my arm. And I'm not exactly a small guy, you know. And uh, <laughs> he he was huge. And he started yelling at me about speeding in a school zone and he says why would you do that why are you doing that you're putting these kids in danger and i think he wanted me to become like a smart aleck so he could pull me out and give me a beat down i think he was trying to challenge me to a fight and uh so i, I showed him my map i said look you know um i'm lost i said there's something wrong with this interstate apparently there's a wreck or something i said i was trying to find another way to my new job he said that's the way the interstate is. He said it's no there's no wreck up there. He said that's just it's just slow. You just need to get used to it. That's Tampa. He said, "Look." He said, "You just need to get back on the interstate." He said, "If I catch you going through a school zone this fast again, he says I'm gonna bust your AWS, you know, every time." And uh, he was really a smart aleck and really hateful about it. And I thought, "Wow, this guy's dangerous." You know, and I mean, steroids, oh, yeah, he was definitely on steroids. I mean, you, you know, when you've been in bodybuilding for a while like I have, uh, you can tell, oh, yeah. you know, who's, yeah, who's juicing what, and who's what are, not. What
0: are some of the uh, the giveaways?
1: If you're overly huge and overly lean, like, you know, you could have a guy that's small, like, say, under 200 pounds, 180, 190 pounds, that's ripped, that, you know, low, very low body fat, um, that could be natural. Or you could have a really big guy that's kind of fat, you know, really big and muscular, but he's kind of fat, like an NFL lineman carrying around some excess weight, then they could be, you know, some of those guys could be natural, but if they're really big and really lean at the same time, they're on a juice. It just doesn't happen. You know, I mean, you just don't have 275, 300 pound guys walking around with ripped abs, you know,
0: at least, at least not many of them. I mean, if, if you are that probably naturally, you're probably a professional athlete or something, but
1: Right, right, yeah. I mean, most most guys that big, I'd say any anybody over about two fifty ripped, is is ninety nine percent chance they're on steroids. I mean, there's occasional genetic freaks that may not be, but I'd say ninety nine percent of them are. And I think that's another problem with uh, police officers. I think a lot of them are on steroids. And I just I started seeing when I was on the internet, you know, sites like Cop Block and some of these, um, where police officers are killing people's dogs. Where police officers are roughing people up, murdering people, getting by with it. Um, I try to, what I like to think of as far as accountability is what the accountability that doctors are held to, or like an acupuncturist, like in my field. You know, we have an acupuncture board. Uh, If you do something wrong, you appear before the board and you defend yourself. And, uh, you know, you probably want to, I would definitely have an attorney if I got called before the board. And you have an opportunity to present your case. They present the case against you and they decide your fate. They decide whether they're going to fine you, whether they're going to suspend your license, whether they're going to take your license permanently, whether you need to maybe do some um, remedial classes, like some continuing education and whatever issue that you have or whatever. But, you know, there's always some kind of accountability. So is that for for acupuncturists? Is that at the state level or the federal level or the certification. It's, it, oh, it's at the state level. Uh, we have a national certification. Uh, you have to pass national board exams. And after that, you have to apply to the state to get your license from the individual state that you're working in. And the state board has a board made up of, I think about seven people. And I think about, I think, uh, four of them are acupuncturists. One of them's a medical doctor. Uh, two of them are just citizens, you know, non-doctor, non-acupuncturist citizens. And, uh, then the district attorney is in on the meetings as well. And mostly they, you know, they have the meetings about once a month and they, you know, they go over people that are, um, new license, uh, applications. And if they don't see any issues, they go ahead and give the person the new license, you know, they they vote on it, but unless there's an issue, they're going to give you your license, you know, but then they go into the disciplinary issues. And sometimes, you know, there are disciplinary issues, like say, for instance, if a, if a, acupuncturist did something that endangered a patient or, you know, say, for instance, if they maybe molested a patient or something, they would take up, you know, they would take up that case and talk about it. And they would either, like I said, they would either pull the guy's license or suspend his license, make him work under another practitioner for a while, um, maybe take continuing education classes. Or, like I said, there's a member of the district attorney's office there and they could press charges, depending on what this person did wrong.
0: So, how could this be implemented in a similar fashion for police officers? Because obviously, there's a, there's a hierarchy to cops. You know, you report to the person above you, to the to the sheriff, to the police chief, whatever. So, is would could this be? Do you think something similar could be or should be implemented on a on a state level for police officers?
1: Yes, I do. I think even. Uh, state level maybe even possibly on a on a city level or a county level uh, for one thing the you know they already have uh, citizen review boards for police but they're not really used like a an acupuncture board or a medical board is um, they're almost never held accountable the citizens review board really only has the ability to investigate and recommend you know I've Kind of researched it before this interview, and they really just have—they just really have the ability to investigate and tell the police chief, "Well, look, this guy did wrong. We think you should fire him, or we think you should uh, discipline him somehow, suspend him for two weeks, or whatever." But the police chief or the sheriff does not have to abide by their recommendations. And so, really, you know, and another thing that, uh, that I found out looking this up, uh, a lot of these citizen review boards take so long. That there's like a one-year statute of limitations. The police have a police bill of rights in many of these uh, locales. And these police bill of rights protect police against being prosecuted in many cases. You know, they have a cooling off period before they can even be interviewed. They get to have their union rep present during interviews. You know, they get to have their representation present. Well, that's not the way it works with a regular citizen. They drag you in there and they start firing questions at you. You know? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, some people are nervous and they don't know their, their rights. So they may talk and everything they say can and will be held against them. But police have, it's a very different procedure. Police are not held to the same standards of accountability that doctors are. Let's say, for instance, I I like to use this analogy. Okay. Like say, for instance, if you were in a hospital, say you're in a hospital, you're going to get your medial meniscus repaired. And the guy in the bed next to you has bone cancer in his leg and he's going to have his leg removed. And let's say, you know, like police sometimes raid the wrong house, you know, a SWAT raid, they raid the wrong house, they kill somebody, they get by with it. And, um, well, let's say for instance, you're in there for a medial meniscus repair. The other guy besides you is in there to have his leg removed for bone cancer. They take you back and they get the charts mixed up and they take your leg off. And, uh, you, you wake up without a leg.
0: And a lot of people think that stuff doesn't happen. My dad's a defense attorney. That's that stuff does happen. And there's actually been laws passed, uh, probably on the state level, um, to try to prevent stuff like that from happening during surgeries like that, where surgeons have to uh, initial if they're going to operate on a leg or where they're going to do their incision. And a lot of surgeons, they, they take offense to having to do that, so they'll just like write really, really small or, or just or just pretty much be a dick about it. But yeah, that that stuff absolutely happens. But of course, like you said, if it does happen... They uh, they pay the consequences for it dearly.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, you know, you would be, if that happened to a person in the hospital, they would be winning multiple million dollar lawsuits. And also the hospital, you know, would come up with some kind of policy. Like now they have, you know, the wristband that they put on you in the hospital has a barcode on it. They make sure that it's double checked, cross referenced everything. It may happen once at a hospital, but it won't happen there again you know, Mm -hmm. and they take measures to make sure it doesn't happen again because they're held extremely accountable. And the thing that, the thing that happens with police is, you know, they're not held accountable, you know, that taking off, taking the leg off the wrong patient is kind of like to me, um, having a wrong door SWAT raid, you know, you got the SWAT team and they go to 137 main street instead of 173 main street, they kick in the door and the homeowner you know, rightfully pulls his gun and tries to defend himself, kills an officer, and then they kill him, you know? And um, they say, Oh no, it was justified. We were there on a SWAT raid. Well it was a wrong door SWAT raid. You know, so they're not really held accountable. I think they they should be held to the same level of accountability that doctors, surgeons, acupuncturists, any you know, any medical professional is held to.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, there was a story not too long ago and an elderly couple, I forget where it was exactly, but <clears throat> Police had identified some of their plants they had around the, the the outside of their house as being marijuana. I guess a neighbor had called the police and said this couple's growing marijuana. And there was a, a raid on their house and they destroyed, you know, going through their house, destroyed a lot of their property. Thankfully, they didn't shoot them and kill them. But it, of course, it turned out, I forget what type of plant it was, but it was just a harmless, harmless plant that they were, that they were growing around their house. So, I mean... I think it's it's easy to, even people who have a hard time accepting that we need to end the war on drugs and we need to let people have control over their bodies, I, th- I mean, I think even people who support the state having a war on drugs start to look at stuff like that and think, oh, holy shit, man, we, we got to start looking at this stuff. And, you know, we have SWAT raids on elderly couples for a plant they're growing outside their house. So I think you can start to chip through the chip through the ice and wake people up that way slowly. I mean, people aren't going to come around immediately, but I think it's a definitely a way to get, to get people to understand how quickly things can get out of hand. Today's episode is brought to you by the Better Money Super Pack. The Better Money Pack was founded to identify and help elect candidates who will fight For their three founding principles of financial responsibility, safe cryptocurrency, and free market solutions. And the Better Money Pack provides an avenue for those of us who support sound money to the problems plaguing this nation. They provide a way to take action. And they're going to do this by investing in five selected races in 2018 to elect candidates at the state level who embody the fight for better money. We decided to partner with the Better Money Pack because we believe in their vision you can support both the Lions of Liberty and the Better Money Pack by visiting lionsofliberty.comslash slash better money. And of course, credit, debit, and crypto donations are accepted. So once again, liberty.com slash better money. Let's get back to the show. And I wanted to move on next year and start talking about your book. So obviously, you know, you have a, a long past here as a libertarian. And you wrote this book, Liberty and the Thin Blue Line. Why did you decide to write it? Why did you pick be it being an author as an avenue to, uh, to be an influence, to bring the message of liberty to the masses?
1: Well, I, I started thinking about it. Um, I've wrote, I wrote another book, and it's a, it's a clinical book to help acupuncturists, chiropractors, doctors to treat athletic injuries. And, um, so this is, this is my second book. So I started and I always had good writing skills. So I thought, you know, this would probably be a good way to do this. So I started just kind of rolling the idea around in my head of writing a novel. And I told my wife about my ideas and everything. She said, you know, that sounds like a really good book. You need to write this. And I told a couple of my friends, they said the same thing. So I started kind of just writing it down a little bit. And the story just developed as I went. And I think books Or, you know, that's one of of the great things about the First Amendment. Our founding fathers realized that the written word is very important and books can influence an entire society. And I thought what I was going to do is write a book where the police chief and the police department are so corrupt that they do just about everything that I've ever heard of corrupt police departments doing. And somebody's going to somebody strong and somebody good is going to have to stand against them. And so it's the David versus Goliath story. And, um, you know, this this police department, everything they did in this book, I looked it up to see, and it's been done somewhere.
0: Yeah, and I mean, reading through this book, I mean, immediately, right off the bat, you get some just completely tragic and crazy situations happening. But obviously with YouTube today and you know, everything we see with police brutality really on, on the forefront, I think today people can read your book and and uh, realize that it's not just a complete, I mean, it, it is fiction, but it's not a complete fabrication, right? Like you said, this stuff does happen. So I think your book today is a lot more, I don't know what the right word is, but I, I guess it's a lot more believable than it would be maybe if it came out, 10 years ago before we had the internet and YouTube and Facebook live and, and all this stuff where they put police abuse and police violence on the forefront of even people who a hundred percent support the cops, no matter what, understand that there's bad cops out there that screw up. So I think it's a, it's a timely book and uh, you know, I, I hope it does well for you. Where can people purchase it? Where can they pick it up?
1: Amazon.com. Uh, if they go to Amazon.com and type in Liberty and the thin blue line, and my book should come up number one. Um, and uh, the the cover of it has the you saw the cover of the copy that I got for mm-hmm. you. and um, you know, it's got a picture of the thin blue line flag in the middle with the Lady Liberty, the Statue of Liberty sinking in water in a thin blue line. And in the background is the Constitution.
0: yeah, it's it's a great book. and I mean for being so this is your first time writing fiction. Your first book was a was a clinical book, right? I mean, for being a first swing at fiction, I think it's pretty darn good. To be honest with you, so uh, kudos to you for that. So, do you have plans, plans
1: in the works to to write more? Or? Yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that compliment. By the way, it means a lot to me. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to do two more in the series. It's going to be a three book series. Uh, the second one is going to be more what happens in New Hampshire after the trial to the characters in the book, and um, the third one is going to be. Uh, what happens kind of nationwide, and the third book, I'm I'm going to go ahead and kind of give away a little bit, the third book's going to be kind of an end-of-the-world type scenario, I mean a really apocalyptic type scenario. Okay. And how the libertarian community fares versus how the uh, people who don't value liberty fare, uh, which, you know, they're not going to fare as well.
0: well. Hopefully it doesn't come down to that in the real world, but... <laughs>
1: I hope not as well, but yeah, I mean, basically the third book, I kind of want to throw a little bit of everything in there, you know, like when the United States splits up, like people talk about uh, how certain states are going to split and get away from the Union, Mm -hmm. like there's always been talk about Texas, there's always been talk about New Hampshire, uh, you know, becoming independent of the United States, and um, in the third book, I'm going to have that happening and also some other, uh, some apocalyptic type scenarios, you know, like war and what, what massive weather events, you know, even, well, I'm not going to give away everything, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, but a lot of that. But like I said, you know, the, the part in the book that people told me in this book was the fate of the sheriff. I mean, the, the I mean, the, uh, the police chief, I mean, not the sheriff, but the police chief in the book, he has that spectacular meltdown and everybody that's read it so far told me that's their favorite part of the book.
0: It's, it's the type of book that it's, at least for me, it was a very easy read. And it wasn't the type of book, though, where you knew what was going to happen. Um, I was definitely caught by surprise a couple times, which is uh, which is good, obviously. And there's a lot more stuff that we could talk about, get in the details of the book. I don't think we want to do that. I don't think we want to give away too much. Um, if you have some more time, we can talk about a couple of these stories uh, trending in the news and play Is This a Crime and Should They Do Time?
1: Is it a crime?
0: So we can start out and I want to start out with the one that you actually sent me first because this one, I mean, it it just blew me away and I'll just do a quick overview of the story. Then we'll talk about it. So this was in Louisiana, I believe, and cops show up in a neighborhood in a housing development. There's a domestic dispute of some sort. A small 12 pound chihuahua runs out of a neighbor's house and in the police report i guess this police officer says that this little dog charged him three times and then this officer shoots the dog killing it in a very from the sounds of it in a, in a very gruesome way um in, in front of in front of a uh, in front of a, the boy who owned the dog the, the young child who owned the dog so just a just gruesome gruesome scene and hard to even imagine how this stuff happens. So the question to you is, of course, when we play, is this a crime and should they do time is, I mean, should this cop for, for killing this dog, is this a crime? And should this officer be held accountable? Should they be, should they be thrown in prison?
1: I I would say, of course. Yeah. I would say that, you know, obviously the dog's only 12 pounds. I own a 12 pound dog that looks exactly like it. I can tell you the breed is a feist. It's a small hunting dog. And that's, Used in the South. They're very popular in the South, but not very well known outside of the South. Everybody thinks they're uh part Chihuahua because they kind of look like Chihuahuas and are not much bigger. But a but a twelve pound dog is absolutely no threat to a full grown man. And for him to say that he feared for his life it just shows cowardice and it shows that he's just trying to cover his tracks. And like I said, he needs to be held accountable. Now the first thing that always happens with the status when I've when I've put um, cop shooting dog stories on my Facebook page and how they need to be held accountable. The first thing a statist always says is, well, if you had a hundred and fifty pound Rottweiler charging at your throat and and he's gonna bite you, shouldn't you shoot him? You know, what is he supposed to do? Just let him bite him in the throat and die? You know, and, and you always hear some statists say it like that. You know, you always hear some statists just say that, well, this dog's gonna kill this cop and this cop was defending his life. There's no way you can defend the cop for shooting a 12 pound dog. It's just there's no way to defend it now. If a dog, if a cop was in a drug raid, and I realize you know if you've got your gun drawn, you don't have time to switch it out, get your pepper spray, and repel a dog. If you're if you're in the middle of a drug raid and a Rottweiler charges and leaps at your face, I'd say yeah, shoot it. Okay, you know, and it would be justified. But in, in under no circumstances with any dog under about I don't know then maybe they could set a weight limit on it, thirty pounds or whatever. Should never be shot, you know, 30, 50 pounds, whatever. There's no way that a dog 12 pounds is going to hurt anyone, especially a, a large police officer.
0: Yeah, the, the first thing that should happen immediately, without even any questions about the situation, the guys, I mean, the guys shouldn't be a cop anymore. If you can't exactly. handle yourself in front of a 12 pound dog barking at you, you should not be a cop. You should not have that responsibility because it's obvious. That you can't deal with it. It's obvious that you're a wuss. I mean,
1: it's it's I mean, that goes without being said. So just a, a crazy story. And he should be charged with felony animal cruelty because that's what it is. If if a person if you or I or any other citizen shot a twelve pound dog with a gun, we would be front and center, six o'clock news, charged with felony animal cruelty. And I'm sure there would be a lot of protesters out there that would make sure that we did time, you know? Mm-hmm. And any other citizen would have. I think police need to be held to the same standards, or or even, maybe even a little bit higher than ordinary citizens. Um, we shouldn't have anybody that has the right to carry a gun is has just as much power over life and death of others as a surgeon in an operating room. And surgeons are held very accountable when they mess up. And cops need to be held to the same level of accountability, I think, as surgeons. You know. And like I said, you know, twelve pound dog. If you shoot a small dog like that, uh, number one, like you said, you can't handle the job. If you're afraid of a dog like that, number two, if I think there needs to be a weight limit. If you shoot a dog under 30 pounds, automatic felony animal cruelty charge.
0: Yeah, I've, I've got to agree with you there. And if you think back, I mean, comparing, we're talking about comparing the actions of civilians to the actions of police officers. So if you think back for five, six years ago, whatever it was, when Michael Vick, he got uh, convicted of animal cruelty, doing some horrendous things to dogs, fighting dogs, just just uh, abusing them terribly. And people, I mean, people rightfully hated him for that. And when he came back and played the NFL, people protested outside the stadium. You don't see anyone protesting outside of you know your local police officer when a officer shoots a dog. You don't see anyone making a fuss about it on the local news or anything like that. It just you know. Gets forgotten about. You'll have a little, maybe a little bit of coverage in the media. Maybe it'll be on, you know, a little two minute spot on the local news, and then nobody talks about it again. It's just, just done with. So definitely, uh, definitely not equality under the law there for sure. So I want to move on next, and we got time for one more story, I think. Here uh, I want to talk about. This was in the news in the past week, and this has happened, you know, many times uh, recently where. You know, Someone's playing video games with someone else. They get in a fight or they're interacting in some way online. And there's a thing called swatting where you call in a false threat against another individual. And this happened most recently. It was in, I believe the SWAT actually happened in Kansas, but the person who made the call was in Los Angeles. The person who made the call was Tyler Barris, and he's been arrested. Uh, I don't think he's been charged yet because they're debating on what he should be charged with you know just depending on uh the degree of recklessness really if it, if if you know if he really were to know to the extent of his actions leading to the death of another man and the man who was was killed by police who were who did the SWAT raid his name was Andrew Finch and just a really really horrendous story and the first thing that comes to mind for me is and you don't see it talked about in any of these news stories online the only reason that SWATting is a problem is because police officers are so quick to do a SWAT raid. I mean, if they weren't so quick to do a SWAT raid, this wouldn't happen. If uh, you know they'll do a little more investigation and maybe use different police tools to try to figure out if there's actually a threat there, then we wouldn't have this problem. So, I mean, the question here is a lot of questions here, but let's start off with this uh, with this first, Derek. Do you think, in, in a SWAT raid, first of all, do you agree that this Tyler Barris uh, has some culpability and should be charged with a crime?
1: Yes, I do. I do believe he he has some culpability and should be charged with a crime. And uh, I also think that the police, they, they need to look at the body cam footage. Um, that body cam footage is everything. If if this guy that was shot, I, said, I know they said he looked like he was reaching for his waistband or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, his pants could have been falling down. You know, if he if he got caught by surprise and he came out of the house with his pants on and no belt, I mean, maybe his pants were falling down. He went to pull his pants up. I don't know. I'd like to see when he raised his hands, if it looked like there was anything in his waist, if it looked like there was anything in his hands, if it didn't look like there was a gun, if there was nothing shiny or black in his hand or in his waistband that looked like a gun and they shot him anyway— Um, I think the cops need to be held accountable. I think there needs to be, there needs to be something because, you know, there's just too many situations out here where these cops claim that, well, I thought he was reaching for a gun. I thought he had a gun. And, you know, I mean, we have instant replay in the NFL and, you know, I mean, you want to, they go with instant replay to see if the guy's foot was in bounds when he caught the ball and life and death is a lot more important than an NFL play. And why we've got cameras now on most, if not all the cops and why not go by the camera footage? If we see the camera footage and it doesn't look like he reached for his waistband or if he was just pulling up his pants and he didn't have anything in his hand, you know, they probably, I mean, there's a SWAT team there. They probably had half a dozen cops with guns drawn on him. You know, they probably yeah. didn't have to shoot him, shoot him that quick.
0: Yeah. The only thing with the, uh, the body cams and back on episode a hundred of this show, I had on three former cops uh, Dominic Izzo, who he's more of a conservative leaning Trump type uh, uh, viewpoint where he comes from. Michael Wood Jr. He's more of a progressive, and Rafer Davis, who's he's a libertarian, he's an anarchist. And we we, we were talking about it. we were talking about this, and the one thing that we were talking about body cams, I should say. And the one thing that Michael Wood brought up that I'd thought about, but I think it's a really good point. Is what you have to worry about with body cameras is who owns the the tape database, who who gets all those recordings, and whoever has that, whoever has that under their uh, control, they can delete or keep whatever they want to. So that's that's definitely a threat, giving that control over to the state. So that's something to. I'm not saying that you know don't use body cameras ever, because I think absolutely. I mean, I, I think there is a, a time and a place for it. But we have to somehow, I'm not sure how, but put in measures to to protect people from not being put in a situation where just certain certain videos used and other videos not used, definitely a situation that I think needs to be definitely a um, tactic, a uh, you know, solution to, to a problem that needs to be talked
1: about more. I agree. Um, you know, I mean, especially, you know, if, if somebody... A lot of times when people have encounters with police, they are, it's probably their worst day of their entire life. You know, they're having a meltdown. Somebody with them or around them or in their families having a meltdown. The police are there to kind of try to diffuse the situation, supposedly. Sometimes they make it a lot worse, <laughs> you know, and uh, sometimes people aren't wearing clothes. You know, you don't want like pictures of naked women going around, you know, just because they're naked. You know, oh, yeah, let's share this police video it's public it's public property let's share it because this girl's naked mm-hmm. you know i mean i could see that being an issue you know well maybe maybe make it public but maybe blur out her private body parts you know what i mean mm-hmm. uh maybe make the footage public where it's a matter of public record but blur out any nudity on it you know that that could possibly expose someone or something uh blur out maybe anybody's uh, you know anybody's uh identifying, personal identifying information, like say maybe their house number or their um, their tag number on their vehicle or something where you, yeah, you, you have a right to see the footage. You have a right to see everything, but any nudity is going to be blurred to protect the person's privacy. Any identifying information like their tag number on their car or their house number on their house or their mailbox is going to be blurred. That way you maybe can't necessarily, you know, find them if you want to go find them. You know, um, but at least maybe it should be made public where the police are going to be held accountable, because I don't think I think that's the biggest problem right now is, there, is that they're not being held accountable.
0: Yeah. And also put in place some sort of uh, accountability for these camera malfunctions and air quotes that we that we hear a lot about, you know, that investigate that stuff, follow up. And uh, that that can't just be a, an excuse that's that seems like it's used all the time. So that's exactly right. I agree. Derek, I want to thank you so much for coming on Felony Friday. This has been fun. Um, I've I've learned a lot too. I learned all that stuff at the beginning about the FDA. Um, it's it's always awesome to bring on another libertarian and and talk about these ideas. And this is a way that you know we're going to get through to people, change people's minds, and make some progress. So I want to thank you for everything you're doing for liberty i want to thank you for for writing your book and future books and we'll have to have you back on to talk about those just want to give you a minute here to to plug anything else you need to or or uh give any parting words of wisdom
1: well thank you so much for having me on i really appreciate it and uh, like i said my book is called liberty and the thin blue line it's an awesome read as john said um if i do say so myself I've had a lot of friends that have read it that says it's one of the best books they've read and they couldn't put it down. Everybody that's read it has told me I couldn't put it down until I finished it. And uh, it's available on amazon.com as a Kindle as a Kindle reader uh, book. and uh, I think it's on, it's price fair. it's only like 799 I think, but um, like I said it's called Liberty and the Thin Blue Line. You'll know when you get it uh, pulled up because it's got the Statue of Liberty in front. Uh, sinking in water uh, that's inside the blue line on the police flag and uh, in the background it's got the u s constitution all right well thank you for coming on Derek okay thank you so much I appreciate it
0: hey guys hope you enjoyed this interview with Derek Williams um, I certainly enjoyed it I thought it was a uh you know a nice different perspective Derek is a Lifelong libertarian, as we talked about, and he comes at the ideas of liberty from a couple couple different angles. Of course, his book, he's coming at more from the policing angle, looking at that aspect, policing gone wrong. But I didn't even know this going into it, the background he had coming from the health and wellness side, the FDA side. And that was really interesting to find out. That was cool. So I'm glad we kind of did this combined episode of... Getting to know Derek, a libertarian, a uh, up and coming libertarian author, but also looking at current events and playing Is This a Crime and Should They Do Time? So I will look to do more episodes like this in the future because I think, you know, the feedback I keep getting from you guys is that you want to hear more uh, current events. You want to hear more about these stories uh, that are happening every day. And I just want I do want to talk about one story that we talked about last week when Mark Clare was on the show. We talked mostly about all the new laws in California in 2018. But before we did that, we talked about a case in Las Vegas of Kirsten Blaze Lobato. And that actually is a case that I covered on an earlier episode of Felony Friday, episode number 55 with Jordan Smith of The Intercept. Talking about that story, uh, Kirsten was convicted and ultimately spent... 16 years, almost 16 years in prison for a murder that she did not commit. I mean, I can say that with hundred percent certainty, there's no evidence. She committed it. There was an alibi that she was not even there. It was not even possible based on forensic evidence of the, uh, of the body at the time, uh, the forecasted time of death, looking at all kinds of different factors that she could not have been there because she an alibi. She was hours away in her hometown, riding a four wheeler. So, she got released. She's out of prison finally. It took a little bit longer than expected, I think, but she is out of prison. The judge threw out the charges and, and she's out. So that is fantastic news. That's great. It's always awesome on Felony Friday to cover a story and see a great result like that. So I'm very happy. And I'm just gonna leave it at that, guys. I will just say if you like this show, if you like the Lines of Liberty, please subscribe on iTunes, on Stitcher. Wherever the heck you get your podcast, subscribe, give us a rating on iTunes. Even if you don't, even if you hate Apple, you know I don't even like Apple. And when I listen to a podcast and I like it, I'll still go to iTunes and I'll review that podcast, give it a five star rating and review because it is the most powerful podcasting uh, platform out there. So to get the algorithm going right, you got to get the reviews and the the five star rating. So thank you in advance for that, and also. If you really like us and you really want to help us a lot, you can join the Pride. Go to linesofliberty.com slash support. And you can do it for as little as $5 a month. Get access to all our all of our bonus content. The highest level you can do it $25 a month. You get a monthly conference call with us, a bunch of free merchandise. $10 the middle level. You get the obviously you get to listen to all the stuff as well, all the bonus content, and you get a little bit less free merchandise. free merchandise. You do not get the call, but Hey, it's still a great deal, and we just hit seven hundred dollars total in the uh, in our pride per month. We have seventy-one members, so it's fantastic. Things are looking up. Very, very excited to see what twenty eighteen holds. So that's all I have. Thank you all for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up, and the fires of liberty burning.